The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program from the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the club. Thank you for considering a donation to support the club's work. And if you do wish to help, please click the blue Donate button at the top of the YouTube chat box or visit the club's website at commonwealthclub.org. Please also remember to submit your questions for Congresswoman Lofgren via the chat room next to your screen, and I'll get to as many as possible later in the program. Now it's my great pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, the Honorable Zoe Lofgren, U.S. Representative from California's 19th Congressional District, which encompasses San Jose and the Santa Clara Valley, where I live and where I am right now. Congresswoman Lofgren has been a Democratic member of the U.S. House of Representatives since 1995. She currently serves on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee. She is an attorney and a former law professor. Representative Lofgren has most recently been appointed to the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. She has said that her goal on that committee is to uncover the truth, protect our democracy, and ensure that such an attack will never happen again. We are so pleased today to have this important conversation with this veteran congresswoman about her role on the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack and its potential impact, as well as the state of the country our democracy, the possibilities for bipartisan legislation, and how to handle such crucial issues as the pandemic variants, the economy, gun violence, and immigration. A warm welcome to you, Congresswoman Lofgren. Zoe, it's so nice to see you. Thanks, Gloria. It's good to be with you, even if it is just virtually. Now, you are still in D.C., is that correct? Congress is still in session. The House is on recess, The Senate is in session this week. I see. Unknown uh, whether we will come back um, if they're if the Senate is able to act on some things that we've sent them, we may come back uh, on on that basis. But for now, we are at home in our districts. I see. But you're you're still having committee meetings and hearings. As a matter of fact, tomorrow I chair the House Administration Committee, which has jurisdiction over federal election law as well as. Uh, the the Capitol. And we're having a hearing uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact, virtually on um, 
a renovation project that has been mishandled by the architect of the Capitol. Oh, dear. Well, we have a lot to talk about with all of your various roles. So let's let's start out on the January 6th Select Committee, since that's of such high interest and such importance to our country and our democracy. Where were you on January 6th, 2021? The scene is this. I mean, the uh, Constitution, the statute specifies that the vice president will count the votes. So there are these mahogany boxes and all of the certificates sent by the states are in those boxes and there are four tellers. I was one of the four, uh, wow. the chair of the House Administration Committee and the senior Republican and our equivalent committee in the Senate, uh, Roy Blunt and Amy Klobuchar. And the vice president opens the, the ballot. He reads, you know, and then he hands it to the tellers. We took turns. So that's what I was doing. Um, when uh, objection was made, which we expected, to the Arizona uh, electoral count, Now, I had been tasked by the Speaker of the House, along with three other Democratic House members, to organize the defense of the vote. And we had spent a couple of days, actually about a week, uh, with uh, other members. We decided the people most ready to defend the votes were the Democratic representatives from the states that were being challenged. And so we had met with the Arizona delegation. We had data, we had case law that we could give them, but they were carrying the bulk of the weight and uh, the objectors objected. And uh, I was the first Democrat to speak in defense of the voters. And then um, I went into the House cloakroom because the Republican House members or most of them were refusing to wear masks And I was trying to avoid breathing their air and getting sick. Um, So I was in the cloakroom when I heard some uh, noise and turned on the news channel and saw that a mob was attacking the the Capitol. I went back out and it was pretty clear that the members who were speaking had no idea that it was going on, but the situation rapidly deteriorated Speaker was evacuated. Um, We were told to shelter in place. We could hear the pounding on the doors and the sounds of the mob. And then we were evacuated. And as we were going down the stairs escaping, we could hear the glass being broken at the other end of the hallway. Um, So that was my on the floor experience. And um, We escaped through the tunnels over to the Longworth building. And I actually went up to my office on the fourth floor so that I would have an opportunity to uh, connect on the phone uh, with various officials since I did chair the House Administration Committee. And I could see out my window, uh, which faces on the Capitol, what was, was going on. Did you ever in your wildest nightmares think that anything like this could happen? No, actually, I, I, I didn't. And I, as I was on the floor, uh, my a, adult son and daughter were texting me, expressing considerable alarm about my safety. And I said, well, don't worry, I'm on the floor of the house. That's the safest place you could be. And they were texting their disagreement. And it turned out they were correct. Um, how it came to be that roughly 10,000 Americans 
thought it was the right thing to do to attack the Capitol, to viciously maul uh, police officers, uh, maim some of them, and invade the Capitol to try and hang the vice president uh, is something we need to better understand than we do now. Well, you're certainly on the path to doing that through the committee. One last question about the day of. What went through your mind as you were hearing this noise and, and so on? What did you think was going on? Who, who did you think this was? Well, I, I, I had the benefit of having seen the mob on the television in the cloakroom. So I could see that they were Trump supporters. They were carrying Trump signs and that they had come from the rally that the then president had held near the White House. They had marched from that rally up to the Capitol and with their don't tread on me flags and their Trump flags, and in some cases, American flags started uh, attacking the police to gain entry. So it wasn't a mystery uh, who was attacking. Um, I had a lot of thoughts, um, you know, as I was watching uh, it unfold, I was wondering, you know, why are these uh, individuals being repelled? You know, and I, I recall that when we had demonstrations, largely peaceful demonstrations at the Capitol from Black Lives Matter activists, there was a huge force of uh, uh, that was unnecessary. There was no violence at, at that demonstration, and there was n- none of that here. I've learned a lot since then about um, the management failures uh, at the Capitol Police. Certainly the officers uh, operate with tremendous bravery, and I'm very grateful to, for what they did. Uh, they, I believe, saved my life and the lives of many others. But there were very serious deficiencies in the preparation and the management of the department that uh, need to be corrected. Interestingly enough, the House Administration Committee has oversight over the police, but we have no control over the police. There is an old statute that vests the complete control of the Capitol Police with the sergeant at arms of the House and the Senate, and weirdly enough, the architect of the Capitol. And they, uh, they also dropped the ball. So um, just in your role chairing the House Administration Committee, does it have any role also in investigating what happened or reviewing the situation? Well, we've had um, five hearings so far, basically going through the inspector general has done as, of the uh, Capitol Police has done a series of uh, reports and investigations into the Capitol Police posture, as well as the inspector general for uh, the architect of the Capitol outlining deficiencies in their preparation. Uh, we will continue to do that. But the, the charge to the insurrection committee, the select committee is much broader. It's not just what happened uh, on that day. What led up to it? Um, who organized it? When did it start? What was the goal? Um, who paid for it? I mean, a lot of, a, a very broad look at the the participants and the organizers, which is certainly beyond the jurisdiction of the House Administration Committee. Looking at the enabling legislation for the Insurrection Committee, uh, it seems to focus very importantly on security issues, command, control, communications, intelligence, the Capitol Police, security agencies. What corrective measures can be taken to prevent this from happening again and improve security? Is that 
a major focus of the committee's work? It is a focus, but I wouldn't say it is necessarily the major focus. Um, Because of the work we've done in house administration, we know some of what needs to be changed. We haven't yet uh, made a proposal on how to change the governance of the Capitol Police Board, but we do know that the, the posture of the agency needs to be uh, changed. And uh, there's unanimity on this point. And as a matter of fact, it was in the work plan that was never implemented uh, of the Capitol Police, that they should be more of a security agency than a regular police department, more like the Secret Service than you know, San Jose PD, uh, because that's really the role that they're playing that needs to transform the entire posture of the agency. Um, there were intelligence failures, not only in the Capitol Police, but in the intelligence agencies writ large. Uh, they don't, uh, they have a dysfunctional and not a dedicated intelligence unit in the Capitol Police, but they got only scatterings of information from other intelligence agencies. So there needs to, we need to broadly look at our information sources um, and, and how we credit information that is in the public domain. Certainly there was a lot of this organizing that was in plain view and yet did not really permeate into the planning by either the FBI, the Secret Service, or uh, the Capitol Police. I mean, you got to remember the vice president was in the Capitol also when that mob uh, descended. He was had with him the nuclear football at his side. Um, so there were failures not only in the Capitol Police, but also in the Secret Service on uh, the risk to the nation. Presumably, interim measures have been taken, you know, that there's been a lot done since January 6th, ad hoc to upgrade everything from intelligence to training to uh, recruitment of the uh, security agencies and the Capitol Police. There have been steps taken, but I, I would not be honest if I said we've accomplished all that needs to be accomplished. Um For example, in terms of riot control at the Capitol Police, they didn't have equipment. Uh, The equipment, uh, the the um, uh, some of the protective equipment had expired and was crumbling. Uh, There was no uh, system in place to make sure that the equipment was constantly updated. Uh, The officers had not been trained, for the most part, in the use of non-lethal weapons that you would use as a riot got out of control. So there's a a lot of problems. Some are being rectified. Some remain to be done. Um, We do not have jurisdiction over the Secret Service, uh, over the FBI. We do have oversight jurisdiction in judiciary. But I do think we need uh, to take a, a, a hard look at how unprepared not just the Capitol was, but the federal government was to the threat that this posed. Uh, What would have happened, you know better than I, Gloria, uh, in terms of the nuclear football and had the mob secured them, it would not be a good thing. Unbelievably frightening. So this is one aspect of the committee's work, but the other aspect you've, you mentioned and you've talked about, which is who was behind the attack, who, who organized it, what their aim was, uh, and can you talk a little bit about that other set of 
objectives and concerns for the committee? Well, I can't speak for the committee, obviously. We're just, uh, we've just been appointed. I think we've been in existence less than a month. We're putting the staff together. We're doing our work plan. We're outlining uh, the subpoenas that will soon be issued um, to outline, you know, what it is we need to start working. And some of it has been uh, overt. Uh, The president former president, was very clear in his statements about what he was seeking to do, which was to overturn the election. Uh, He uh, referred to Republican congressmen who were helping him to do that. How did that work? Uh, Who else was involved, Uh, both in terms of the people close to the president, but also other entities? Um, Were there foreign actors involved in this? Um, You know, there's a lot of questions, uh, more questions than answers uh, now, but we have an intention to get the full picture uh, that we can then make known to the public. Uh, Let's talk for a moment about the composition of the committee, the strategy, um, uh, Nancy Pelosi's strategy in rejecting uh, some of the Republicans and bringing on Ms. Cheney and Mr. Kinzinger. Tell us a little bit about that strategy. How's that going to work out in the end in terms of the credibility of the committee, the acting on its recommendations and so on? Well, I think it, it, you need to take, take a step back because our first choice was an independent commission. And uh, Benny Thompson, who chairs the Homeland Security Committee and is chairing the Select Committee, uh, worked with his ranking member, this top Republican on that committee to do a bipartisan bill. And every single thing that uh, the Republicans wanted, we agreed to. Um, and when it was all done, and it was our understanding, and we later found out that was correct, that uh, Mr. Katko, the ranking Republican, was in communication with his leadership. Uh, and so the bill was introduced, it was bipartisan, And then uh, Mr. McCarthy, the minority leader, said no, he could not take yes for an answer. And I think the obvious conclusion from that is that he does not want an investigation into what happened leading up to January 6th. Uh, When the bill passed the House, and we did get Republican votes to pass it, uh, it went to the Senate and the minority leader, Mr. McConnell, put it on the basis of personal favor to oppose the commission and it was defeated. So then uh, we were faced with uh, two options, one, do nothing, or two, do something. And the only thing left to us was a select committee. Under the terms of the committee, uh, there would be eight, well, there would be five Republicans who could be appointed. And they were subject to veto by the speaker. When McCarthy nominated uh, his five Republicans, two of them were unacceptable. And I'll tell you why. One of them uh, voted against uh, certifying uh, the election. That was not a disqualifier. Uh, he, uh, he is a freshman from, from Texas, but uh, we made an assessment that he was, would work. You know, he's a Trump supporter, but that's, you know, that's his right. Uh, but he would work and, and investigate this. The other two members, um, Rodney Davis uh, is the ranking member in House administration that, you know, he again is a Trump supporter, but he would work in good faith on this as well as Mr. Armstrong, 
uh, from North Dakota, who I've worked with on the Judiciary Committee, who, again, is a Trump supporter, but an honest individual uh, who would work in good faith. Mr. Jordan is clearly going to be a fact witness. Uh, He recently admitted that he um, spoke to the president on the 6th of January multiple times and in the days leading up to it. And in fact, the president referenced him as one of the individuals who was working with him on the uh, plan to overturn the election. There is a conflict. Uh, if I don't know whether he will, he did say he would show up without a subpoena. We would hope that is true. Uh, but that is really a conflict in terms of being on the committee. Uh, the other proposed Republican uh, said it was the whole thing was a sham and, you know, it was obviously not going to work in good faith. Uh, the speaker invited the uh, minority leader to, to put two other Republicans up who would, uh, you know, they can uh, be hostile to Democrats if they want to be. That's not the issue. The issue is, are they going to work in good faith to get answers? And instead of doing that, he withdrew all of the applicants. Um, Many of us felt that it would be good to have a bipartisan uh, committee. And uh, the speaker did invite Liz Cheney and then later Adam Kinzinger to join. They are super conservative. As, as Liz said at our hearing, she couldn't think of a single policy item that she agreed on with the Democrats on the select committee, which has nothing to do with our task. Our task is to investigate this. So, um, Talk a little bit about the powers of the committee. It has subpoena power. Uh, uh, justice has said it. Uh, there's no executive privilege. Um, will it be calling high-level witnesses like former President Trump? Well, I don't know. I, I'm really not in a position to say who we're going to call at this point. We will call whoever is necessary um, to get to the truth. My personal view in terms of calling uh, former President Trump is, you know, balancing the trouble that would cause in terms of actually getting him to appear versus the weight of the testimony for a man who has a veracity problem. Um, you know, how many lies per day uh, we used to, we used to count up. So I think that has to be factored in to any decision relative to the former president. But certainly there are many individuals who we believe will speak to us um, and who will lead us to others. Some will appear voluntarily. Some will require a subpoena. There are also um, entities that have information, for example, in the social media world, uh, which, I mean, always companies require uh, subpoenas for legal purposes. So we will have a very wide net. And uh, I expect that uh, the former president will try and litigate everything. He's a very litigious person. Uh, however, um, a lot of the deck was kind of cleared on some of this in the last administration. For example, the Judiciary Committee subpoenaed the then um uh, lawyer for the president, Don McGahn, uh, that was uh, fought to a standstill and ultimately he had to appear. So uh, the legal issues being advanced have been quite litigated and uh, the House has prevailed. And I think those precedents can be asserted to kind of uh, jump to the chase, if, if you will, on some of these, uh, some of these cases.
Are there any other powers or authorities that the committee has that are important to this investigation? Well, I think the the power to get documents and the power to get testimony is a major issue. Um, Obviously, when it comes to compelling uh, members of the House to speak, we may have other uh, means available to us, but that would be speculation at this point. So far, the members whose names have been in the press as potential witnesses have all indicated they have nothing to hide while also trying to intimidate us into not calling them forward. So we'll see how this develops. I am getting uh, via text some questions from our audience from the YouTube chat. And one person wants to know when the next hearings will be. Will they, they be televised? When will the public have an opportunity to see more of the work of the committee? Well, I don't have a date right now. We decided to open our uh, our uh, debut, if you will, as a committee with the video and testimony of the officers, just because there are some members of Congress and the House and Senate, as well as um, kind of propagandists in the media world, trying to indicate that nothing really happened, which is absurd. And I think if you watch the video and listen listen to the testimony of those officers who were amazing, uh, you couldn't help but understand that something did happen on January 6th. It was violent. And uh, we, you know, it was not a bunch of tourists visiting the Capitol. Um, This month, the House is uh, in recess. The members of Congress are home in their districts, visiting with their constituents. And the members of the select committee are meeting um, uh, virtually, outlining our next steps. We're not going to have a hearing just for the sake of having a hearing. We're going to have a hearing when there is something important for the public to see. Uh, I believe that our proceedings will be a mix of private interviews, depositions, and public hearings. And uh, we'll have a public hearing when there's something that we have to show to the public. I watched some of the testimony of those police officers, and I can only imagine what it was like to be there and to hear what they had to say and the emotion with which they said it. What was the atmosphere like in the hearing room when they were testifying? Actually, it was surprisingly emotional. I don't know if you noticed. I don't know Adam Kinzinger very well at all or Liz Cheney. I mean, we don't serve on any committees together. We've never been on a congressional delegation trip together. Um, when Adam went to speak, he was choked up. And I I didn't expect that. And he didn't expect that. I mean, uh, for all of us sitting there and listening to what these men went through, um, the assaults that they went, they were hurt. And they went back and they washed as best they could the poison out of their eyes and turned around and went right back out for the fight. And what they did was they saved our lives. And all of us were aware that had they not done what they did, quite likely we would not be sitting in that room. Some of us would have been killed. Um, That was the intention pretty clearly of various members of this riot. So there was that element and, you know, different degrees. Um, One of our members 
was in a room. She had, I didn't know this until uh, just the, the week before the hearing, that she had been uh, in a little room that was down the hallway from uh, the, uh, where the officers were with tear gas. And uh, what they did allowed her to be evacuated. And uh, it was very, very personal for each one of us. I um, I just want to mention that Liz Cheney will be with us here at the Commonwealth Club on the 18th. She'll be doing a conversation with Dan Ashley from KGO7, uh, actually in person in San Francisco, assuming that's still possible and online. So if you have any questions we should be asking her, let us know. Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, again, I, it's not someone I know very well, but I have been impressed that she's, you know, she's very bright. Um, she has good questions. She's got uh, good ideas. I mean, she and I probably don't agree on 99 out of 100 policy items. Uh, but certainly, I'd love to get back to the point in our country when she and I could argue about policy instead of having Republicans and Democrats argue about reality. Okay. We'll, we'll put that to her. Um, so what, um, what's the practical impact of the committee's work? So it does its work. It has findings. What's the import in law, in public policy of those findings, recommendations, particularly, yeah, particularly about the more complex issues like, uh, who was behind this and, uh, you know, who organized it? We don't know the answer to that yet, Glory, because we're starting this journey. We're not at the end of the journey. Um, it may be that we will find things out that um, the Department of Justice doesn't know. I mean, this is, uh, it's a highly politicized in a way, not partisan, but it was the president of the United States who had that rally. I mean, uh, it wasn't a non-entity. And so um, that can't be overlooked. Um, what's, what changes should be made to statute, if any, will have to, have to uh, wait upon what we, we find out. Um, I do think laying out what happened to the American public is very important. Because uh, the most precious thing we have is our, um, our American democracy. And I think Liz says something to the effect that we care more about hating our political enemies than we care about loving our American democracy. I hope not. And so the best outcome would be a widely understood uh, on the part of the American public understanding of what actually happened and a renewed commitment to democracy and to the American constitution. That would be aside from any legislation or, you know, any prosecution to me, that would be the most important thing for the American public to renew its passion for the American democracy. Do you think that, and this is a question from our audience, do you think that what happened um, highlights larger problems with homeland security in the U.S., larger vulnerabilities that we have. We're about to come up to the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which obviously came from outside. 
But uh, what do you think the current state of homeland security uh, is at this point? Well, certainly after 9-11, quite a few steps were taken to increase our security posture, to share information um, among agencies. But that was always outward looking. Um, I will say, uh, you know, after the I was walking back over to the Capitol after the uh, the riot, and I thought, you know, the uh, our foreign enemies saw this too, um, that uh, it is possible to breach this building and to do damage to the institution. So I think the success of the rioters did make us more vulnerable, not only to other domestic terrorists, but also to international enemies. And as you know, we have them. Um, I do um, believe that the failure to focus on white supremacist extremist groups has been a failure. And I lay that back to uh, the time of um, really when Janet Napolitano was the uh, secretary for Homeland. They were beginning that and they got a lot of pushback from the Republicans in the House in particular and they pretty much dropped it. That was a mistake uh, because uh, these extremist groups are violent and they have grown since that time. And they are, uh, you know, some of the FBI experts have said they are the biggest threat to the American democracy right now. So it doesn't mean we can't pay attention to foreign adversaries. We have to, we have them. We've got to keep ourselves safe from them, but uh a bigger threat right now might be internal. Another question from the audience. What is your gut feeling about the allegations of Congress members actually being complicit in the attack and providing access information, locations, timing, etc.? I don't know the answer, and I don't want to leap to a conclusion. Uh, certainly, we will examine that. Uh, and if that is the case, that would be a very serious matter for the Congress uh, for any member of Congress who was involved, as well as potentially the Department of Justice. Getting back to your comments about how President Trump would probably fight everything and be litigious and so on, one member of the audience wants to know, how likely do you think that he will be held accountable personally in any way for what happened? Well, obviously, uh, you know, the House of Representatives does not have the capacity to um, initiate legal action. I mean, an indictment or something of that, that's not a legislative role. We did impeach him twice. Um, and as a matter of fact, the second impeachment found that he incited this riot. Uh, a majority of the House voted for that. Ten Republicans voted for it in the House. And although he didn't get the 60 vote margin, the Constitution requires 57 percent of the United States Senate said he was guilty of that which is pretty phenomenal. So, uh, you know, the, the House and Senate have reached a conclusion that he was complicit in inciting this riot. What goes beyond that is what we need to look at. What was he doing all day? Why was, was it that the National Guard uh, was not permitted to come and save the Capitol? There are a lot of questions that need answers. What's the commission, the uh, committee's timeline or purview? I mean, how long could it be investigating these matters? Well, each committee uh, exists only for the term of the Congress. 
So, I mean, it could not continue beyond this uh, Congress. Certainly, we, we don't plan to go that long, but we will take the time that we need to get all the answers. And we're going to work as fast as possible because we don't really want to drag this out. We want to get to the chase. How are your fellow members of Congress and you yourself dealing with the trauma of having been through this experience on January 6th? And if not for some protection, potentially having lost your lives? Well, I think different people, uh, you know, we're all different and our uh, physiology has us reacting in different ways. I know that uh, some uh, members, I think, are uh, really uh, continuing to get uh, a therapy for the trauma that they uh, experienced. And I give them credit for that. Uh, If you need medical care, you should get medical care. So that is a good thing. I tend to be uh, fairly even in my demeanor, although my husband insisted that I was more traumatized than I let on. And I think he was right. uh, In terms of when I first saw the videos afterwards, it did have a call out a very emotional response to me. Um, But I think I have, by continuing to watch, desensitized those reactions. And so I'm just moving forward. Um, The police officers involved you know, had varying responses. We had, we've had a number of police officers have taken their own lives. Um, and whether or not you can draw a direct, direct line, obviously you never know what's going on in the lives of individuals, but certainly that so many officers were uh, subject to that tremendous abuse and trial. Uh, we can't ignore. Uh, we know that, um, hundreds of officers were injured and the psychological injuries may not have been as well um, diagnosed as the physical, you know, people lost eyes and uh, fingers and um, had uh, other damage that is permanent. But I think everybody who went through that has some little stab that they've got in their, in their heart. You mentioned, um, holding the hearings early on uh, to really remind people that something actually happened. And I certainly marvel, as I'm sure you do, at the current ability uh, to deny facts and reality and, and have a different interpretation of a completely different interpretation of things that have happened. Um, and sort of Going back into how our country is educating people, how people are consuming media uh, to arrive at a place where they think that things that happened didn't happen or, or whatever, whether it was the Holocaust or whether it was what happened on January 6th, what do we need to do in this country, whether it's in civics education or how we how media is available and consumed. What do we need to do to sort of establish a better base for our citizenry in understanding, participating in, and appreciating our democracy and our civil society? Well, I think, Gloria, it's, it's not just civics education. It's, there, uh, there's a psychological aspect to this that we need to better understand. 
in some cases, it's just, um, well, let me give the example of one member of Congress who uh, said, you know, it looks like just a bunch of tourists. Well, he actually, during the riot, was on the floor helping the Capitol Police to push furniture up to the door so the rioters couldn't get in. He must know that he's lying um, because uh, he was there. I've seen a picture of him there. I've seen the tape of him saying it looked like tourists. He's a liar. Um, But there are people, you know, in the public broadly who are thinking that what that liar said is true when it's a complete falsehood. And the question is, how do we have a common reality? I do think, um, I thought it was a positive that apparently Fox News, whose um, media stars and entertainers are trying to pretend that this really didn't really happen, that the uh, officers were actors. I mean, really absurd things that they're saying. But the, the news division actually ran the hearing um, so that Fox News viewers would see the videotape, the officer's testimony. And I think if you saw that, it would be hard to conclude that nothing happened. Um, I do think we've got to better understand the role of propaganda. It's not new. There's been propaganda uh, through the ages. Uh, how is a complete lie uh, sold to the American public or any public, this is happening in other countries as well, uh, so that uh, reality is distorted. And that's not, I mean, I'm for civics education. And I do, it was my favorite class in high school and every kid ought to have a copy of the constitution and read it, but that's not the only problem we have here. So it's a lot of uh, responsibility is incumbent, I think, on the media to counteract, report correctly, seek truth, fact check um, what is out there from other media. I think that's correct. And I think the role of social media in particular, not just social media, because broadcast media has played a role in this as well, um, in terms of uh, creating a false narrative and luring people into believing it, and also how that interplays with political leaders. Um, Certainly, President Trump uh, is still saying that the election was stolen, that somehow, and, you know, people tend to believe he's the president of the United States. Of course, it must be true. Uh, Making things up, you know, that somehow there was a computer defect when there are paper ballots, and the paper ballots are counted by hand, and yield the same result as the machine tally. You know it wasn't a machine glitch because you've got paper ballots that were counted by hand, and yet the lie continues to resonate. One audience member says, how do you even begin to have conversations with fellow congresspeople and some of the folks online today that are living in a completely different reality? Well, it's not easy. Um, You know, some of what I've tried to think through and get advice on is how do you engage with someone who not just you, you have a political disagreement with, because we know how to do that, but has a different reality Uh, and providing a frontal assault on their false fact uh, base is generally not very successful because it causes their people's character to crumble 
So to ask questions, what, what piece of information would cause you to doubt what you just said? Um, would X and Y make you wonder whether that's accurate? And instead of attacking the person as a dummy or ill-advised, because that's not fair to our fellow citizens, people are getting information and they're trying to put together what happened. Um, let's be respectful and, and see how we can come to a common agreement of, of facts. That's the issue. Well, um, I know that the work of the committee will be um, tremendous and come out with great uh, results. Let's shift for just a moment to other things that are going on. After the January 6th committee, what is most occupying your time? Uh, let's talk about the pandemic. I know the infrastructure bill, one anyway, just went through. Uh, what are you most concerned about other than this work of this committee? Well, I'm, you know, I've got a lot of different assignments. I'm on five separate committees, which I think is some kind of record. And uh, we're doing actually some good things uh, with bipartisan efforts in the science committee, especially on uh, when it comes to using science and technology and understanding, detecting and fighting wildfires, uh, which is of particular interest here in the West, although not only the West. And, you know, you get the picture looking at the news, not surprisingly, that it's all acrimony, all party line votes, well, the science committee is a little beacon of hope because I think all of the bills that we've taken up so far this year have been unanimous. Um, and uh, for example, a huge expansion in the capacity of the National Science Foundation uh, to uh, support science and also the Department of Energy research projects. We had uh, bipartisan votes on that, not only in the committee, but in the House that's very important uh, because we won't um, we won't have a growing economy in the future if we don't have uh, funding, uh, robust funding for basic science research that only the government has the resources to fund. Um, I chair the immigration subcommittee in the Judiciary Committee, and I have been trying for all these many years to get reforms to what is close to a dysfunctional immigration system. Um, we have passed several bills in the House, and they're over on the Senate side now. Uh, the DREAM Act, which people have heard of, young people brought to the United States as children. We also did a bipartisan bill that I wrote with the Democratic and Republican lawmakers. It took us over a year to write, uh, along with the United Farm Workers Union and all the growers sitting down and hashing out differences got a big bipartisan vote for the farm workers uh, in the House, and that's also over in the Senate. Uh, we've done uh, working on the president's uh, proposal, the U.S. Citizenship Act, which is very big and uh, very important. And we're, we haven't been able to produce that, but it does. We're not competing successfully for the most highly skilled scientists um, who are foreign born. We've had a hear, recent, several hearings on it, but um, you know we've got people with postdoctoral degrees, but because they were born in India, they're facing a 20-year wait for a permanent resident card, and they can get uh, the equivalent permanent card in Canada in less than six months. There's a reason why 
the Toronto economy, tech economy is growing faster actually than Silicon Valley's and its immigration. So we need to do uh, some important things to make sure that we are um, serving the American economy well, that we're building American jobs and not pushing them to other countries. Um, I, you know, we met with the president last week, myself and some other House and Senate members on whether we could put some of these provisions in the reconciliation bill that's being uh, discussed. And the president was very, uh, very welcoming on that. He said he was all in. And uh, so I'm hopeful that we'll get some of this done uh, in the reconciliation process. Obviously, the COVID situation is not what we want it to be. This variation has set us back. Um, the role of the of the Congress has primarily been to make enough resources available to the private sector that we don't have even more economic damage before we get through to the other side, in addition to um, making sure that we have uh, vaccines and testing and the like. It's disappointing to me that so many Americans are have failed to take advantage of the vaccine, which is you know, the benefit that we have from that, that the science research that has gone on to, to give us that opportunity and that some people would not avail themselves of that opportunity and become little Petri dishes uh, for additional variants to grow is really uh, disappointing. It hurts their health, but it also damages and threatens the health of everyone else. So, uh, you know, we can't require, the federal government can't require everyone to take a vaccine, but certainly the private sector is stepping forward. I know many of the companies here in Santa Clara County are saying, if you want to come back to work, you have to be vaccinated. And what I'm hearing from not just companies, but from workers is they don't want to go back to work unless they know their coworkers are vaccinated. They don't feel that's fair to them. So I think we'll get there, but it's taken longer than it should have. We we actually um, surveyed both our our staff at the club and our members and constituents, and that's exactly what they said that they would feel comfortable coming back when they knew everyone else was vaccinated. So we have had a um, vaccine um, a proof of vaccination check as well as a mask requirement and distancing requirement for any events at the Commonwealth Club. So we're not changing anything because we've been there all along and we feel that's prudent and it's a good example to set. Um, is Are there any levers for uh, the federal government with a va- vaccine mandates? Is there anything? As, as the vet, federal government as an employer can require vaccines and the president has indicated uh, an indication to move in that direction. Certainly the uh, VA, like most other hospital systems, is going to require its personnel to be vaccinated. Uh, for those who think that it's appropriate for a physician or a nurse uh, to, to be unvaccinated in a hospital, I just don't get it. Um, you know, you don't have to be vaccinated, but if you want to work in the VA, you do. Um, so uh, you know, there can be uh, reasons why someone for a health reason can't be vaccinated. Uh, in those cases where possible, you need to accommodate them through remote working. But the vast, vast majority of those who've refused vaccination just don't want to do it. 
And, uh, you know, we can't make them, but if they don't want to do it and they want to work in a nursing home or in a hospital, they're going to have to find a different line of work. Um, switching for a second to the infrastructure bill, what were what are the greatest victories in what's contained in the current uh, version of the infrastructure bill? Well, I guess the most amazing thing is that we have both Republicans and Democrats in the Senate working on the same bill. The scope of the bill is far short of what we uh, had in the in the House version, uh, and uh, there will be a need to bring the parties. Uh, in the Senate and the House together after the Senate finishes its work. Uh, in the House bill, it was it was a green bill. I mean, in addition to transportation, we recognized in the House that you can't just keep pumping uh, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. This is, you know, the majority of greenhouse gases in the United States come from the transportation sector. We need to take advantage of the opportunity to completely change that. And our bill uh, did move us in that uh, direction. The Senate bill is much less ambitious in that regard. Um, The other thing in the Senate bill is very little for uh, public transit. The House uh, had a robust public transit Uh, element. And uh, we're not willing to just do highways. I mean, we have to have uh, public transit, not only to meet the needs in urban areas, but also to move us away from greenhouse gases once again. Um, So, you know, there are going to be major differences, but I want to at least celebrate that the Senate is moving forward instead of treading water. That's not always what we see. And uh, if we get movement forward, then we have a chance to come to a meeting of the minds. And, you know, sometimes I go to schools and I have a a little booklet and it's called How Our Laws Are Made. But I have to say, well, this is how the laws are supposed to be made. Uh, And that involves what's called a conference committee. If House and Senate do different bills and you get together and you come up with a conference committee and you work out your differences and adopt them. And we may actually have something like that for the uh, transportation bill. That would be, that would be a treat. Um, This may be unfair to ask, but I, you probably can guess where it it comes from. Um, No high speed rail in the, uh, among the public transit options in the bill. That's correct. Now, California did get the money for high speed rail back that the Trump administration wrongfully uh, took away. Um, And, uh, there, there isn't a big push on high-speed rail, as you've noted in the bill. Um, that doesn't mean that that will never occur. Uh, but at this point, I think California is busy spending what it got back uh, from the Trump theft of the money, and we will see how we go from there. I do think we need to be aligned between California state government and the federal government on that project. And as you know, they're still planning Uh, sessions underway that are going to be key, uh, both entering the Bay Area as well as entering Los Angeles. If those are not handled successfully, the project is in jeopardy. You know, the sense I get from our compatriots here in the Bay Area, people are a little down at this point. It's been a long haul for 16 months with COVID, the economy. We have a great deal of homelessness. We have you know, businesses closing and so on. 
uh, people are discouraged that here's there's yet one more mask mandate. We have to sort of, you know, pull back to the reopenings that were, were going on. What would you say to people who are feeling um, down and, and discouraged at this point? Well, I know what you're saying because I feel it myself. Um, you know, it's this has been a long slog, and I guess I felt like everyone else, it's in the rearview mirror now, and oops, it isn't. So I guess what, what I'm saying to myself and to my constituents is let's let's understand that these things are still within our control. The economic growth, we met with the president and, and the growth, uh, GDP growth was like 6.7%, something like that. The fastest growth of any country in the world. And yet the press coverage was, well, it wasn't 7%. It's like, sometimes let's take a look at what we've achieved, not just what we wanted to achieve and didn't do. The issue of homelessness is so depressing. And I think my neighbors and I feel this, everyone does. It's completely unacceptable to have mile after mile of people living in tents. It just can't be. And so I do think there's a huge amount of money that we have allocated uh, to states to get moving on this. Uh, the people have complained that the money hasn't moved fast enough. And I think there's some fair criticism there. But it takes a while for large government programs to get to get rolling. There's a momentum. Governor Newsom has had his hands full. And I think overall, he's done a pretty credible job uh, in, in the face of, of challenges really unlike uh, any governor of California has ever faced, really, since, since the Spanish flu in, in 1918. And uh, we, our economy has survived. Our people have, for the most part, survived. Uh, our growth is good. We're starting to move people out of those tent cities and into uh, dwellings. That's a long process. Uh, our county, for example, just adopted a procedure to, to allocate mental health services to people who are troubled on the street so that that cannot continue to be uh, ignored. So we're, we're, we're getting there. It's just depressing that we're not there yet. I know exactly how people feel. I feel it myself. And that's one of the reasons why I think you have uh, members of Congress going home to their districts. Being a representative is not just reading the letters of your constituents and responding, but being home with them and feeling the same thing they do and getting the energy that from them to get answers and changes that are necessary. So you've really answered this in part, but this is coming from our audience and probably will be our last question here. Uh, for you personally, in the midst of the negativity uh, these days, what keeps you going in this job? How do you overcome any pessimism you feel? Well, I think, you know, I'm someone who I tend not to give up. Um, and what I've learned over the years is if you never give up, things happen. Um, people who say that nothing can happen turn out to be wrong. And there's, there's a reason for it. I have uh, grandchildren who just turned six, and I, I think about them a lot and what kind of future they will have and their classmates. All of us are in this, not for ourselves, frankly, at our age, 
you know, the next uh, century is not going to be here with us. It's the young children who have to have a, a free country that's still a democratic country uh, that has an environment that is suitable for human life an economy that allows them to prosper and live decent lives. That's what it's about. And, and one of the things I learned as a mother is you can't, you know, I, I brought my kids to school and I realized I couldn't just have them have a good life. If their classmates were living in fear and in poverty and in, it, that that would infect my children really to have uh, a safe community you have to look at the whole community, not just your own family. And that's why I'm in public life. You know, I'd, um, I'd just like to thank you personally for your leadership on this um, select committee. Um, I've, I worked with Congress in different ways over the years, including as a member of the executive branch. But I was so impressed when I showed up for my internship with a member of the House after my sophomore year of college, that was Don Regal, long, long gone from Congress. And I went to the Capitol building. I toured around. I looked at all of, you know, the House floor and the Senate floor. And when the in- insurrection, when the attack occurred, I cried. I, this was just the citadel of democracy, the very center of the people's house and democracy. And so that was such a terrible event, such a traumatic event. And I can only imagine how it affected you. And so thank you for what you're doing to get to the bottom of this and take steps to make sure it can never happen again. Well, Gloria, thank you for that. And really, it's, it's worth keeping in mind that we were really just inches away from um, the government being overthrown. It's, it sounds uh, hyperbolic, um, but had the uh, electoral college boxes been captured and destroyed, uh, the peaceful transfer of power would have been disrupted and our normal uh, democratic governmental processes would have been uh, disturbed or eliminated. So it's not just the feelings we have for the building as a symbol, but the great passion we have for the freedom we enjoy, which is really based in our constitutional democracy. And that's what's at stake. Thank you for being on the front lines of defending our constitution and our democracy. We are at the end of our time now. Um, I really want to say a big thanks to Zoe Lofgren, U.S. Representative from California's 19th Congressional District. Thank you for your strength and your tenacity uh, and for uh, standing to protect our, our democracy. Thank you also to all of our viewers. Uh, I'm Gloria Duffy, and now this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.